Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is Relentless Daring on Podbean.com. Welcome to the land of bourbon and bad decisions. This is Relentless Daring, not live on Podbean.com and the Podbean app. This is one of those rare episodes where I get to do an interview with someone totally awesome and more than willing to come on the show and talk with me. Uh, Today. This week, I had the opportunity to have an interview with John Ziegler, and we discussed his new podcast, With the Benefit of Hindsight, which is about the Penn State sex abuse scandal with Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno and all that. Uh, it was a great interview. For those of you who don't know who, jo- who, don't know who John Ziegler is, John is the senior contributor to Mediaite. He's a talk show host. He's a documentary filmmaker, an absolute all-around media does-it-all kind of guy. Um, he was very gracious to come on the show with me and talk about it. It was a good about 45-minute conversation. I'm happy to share it with you, but first, got to pay some bills. You know, you got to I have to thank Built Bar. They are by far the greatest protein bar on the market. Uh, You won't find a protein bar that actually tastes good like a Built Bar. Every bar is coated with either dark chocolate or white chocolate. And the flavors, they've got like 18 regular flavors, plus they have special flavors come out uh, when the coconut brownie chunk come out oh my god you cannot keep me off their website so go to builtbar.com use promo code relentless save 10 percent builtbar.com the best tasting protein bar in the world hands down all right so i am happy to welcome john ziegler a an all-round media mogul, if you want to call him that, uh, senior contributor at Media I. He's a documentary film producer, an amazing investigative journalist. Um, recently, he has started a new podcast called With the Benefit of Hindsight, where he's going back 10 years after the whole Penn State sex abuse scandal and looking at all the evidence that he has amassed over this time frame and putting it out there to really give context to everything that happened. Uh, John, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So back when you first started looking at this, what was like some of the first things that kind of clued you in that there might be a lot more to the story than what was going on? (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a great question, uh, because there were there were a lot of things uh, that happened in sequence that made me start to question the entire media narrative of the so-called Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky uh, sex scandal. The first was the basic story that we were being told to believe based upon basically no public evidence at all. And that story was that Mike McQuarrie, then a graduate assistant at Penn State, 10 years earlier, this was not something that happened back in 2011 or 2010 when the story broke. This this happened 10 years earlier. Mike McQuarrie had witnessed the rape of a young 10-year-old boy in a Penn State shower by Jerry Sandusky, who was then a former assistant coach at Penn State, that Mike McQuarrie told Joe Paterno about it, the great Joe Paterno, And Joe Paterno did basically nothing, passed it up the food chain, Penn State covered it up, and Jerry Sandusky 
continued on with his sex crimes for another 10 years before finally being uh, stopped by the, the state of Pennsylvania in a massive three-year investigation. That narrative on its face was absurd to me. Now, all sorts of strange things happen in this world. As I, as I always say, it's absolutely insane that O.J. Simpson killed his ex-wife and her friend in front of her house. Uh, however, that happened. And the evidence that it happened is overwhelming, despite what the jury verdict was in that criminal trial. In this particular case, we're being asked to believe something that's preposterous with no evidence. And in fact, as I've accumulated over the last 10 years, there's a mountain of evidence that goes against that narrative. And so I think it was the general narrative at the beginning, but then I, if there was one fact that really was the key to me starting to question everything about this case, it was that a few months after the firestorm hit, after Joe Paterno had been fired and Jerry Sandusky had been arrested and put under house arrest and the pre president of Penn State, Graham Spanier had been essentially fired and Joe Paterno had died even, but before Jerry Sandusky's trial, the prosecution very quietly, thanks to their friends in the media, changed the date of that Mike McQuarrie episode. And they didn't just change it a little bit. They changed it rather dramatically from March 1st, 2002 to February 9th, 2001. And when I heard that, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, because uh, we're going to put all of this. I was going to say, it, it'd be one thing like, okay, he had the dates mixed up and pushed back a couple months, but 13 months is kind of a big screw up if you're the prosecutors. Well, and let's be clear about the nature of this screw up. It's not as if uh, Mike McQuarrie was woken up in the middle of the night one, one night and asked, okay, what date did this happen? And he just spewed out the wrong date because he you know, didn't remember exactly and didn't research it. No, no, this was after an enormous amount of thought and research by authorities with unlimited resources in the state of Pennsylvania, the attorney general's office, the date that they affixed this all to was March 1st, 2002. And by the way, if you look carefully, you'll still find fairly recent news articles that, that reference inaccurately that March 1st, 2002 was the date. And of course, there's other problems than just the, the 13 months. The, March 1st, 2002 is obviously after 9-11. February 9th, 2001 is obviously well before 9-11. I, I would suggest that most people who were of a certain age at that in that era would tell you that that is a really odd memory slip, right? <laughs> that if, if something was really that important and made that much of a mark on your memory, you would remember whether or not it happened before or after 9-11. However, if you were trying to reverse engineer a story that didn't actually happen the way that you said that it did, uh, you, you might miss it uh, in that way. And I believe that that's what happened. And that led me on an incredible 10-year journey that's been hellish at times of investigating what really did and did not happen in this case. And one of the great revelations that we have in our podcast, which is 19 episodes long, it's an epic journalistic endeavor. But the first episode is based upon the idea that guess what? Prosecution Mike McQuarrie didn't just get the date wrong once, they got it wrong twice. And the second date that they, we were given, March, uh, February 9th of 2001, is still wrong, and it's wrong in a way that blows up the entire case. Because we now know, I believe, and Malcolm Gladwell has substantiated this in his last book, Talking to Strangers, where he used my work to document this reality, that the actual date was December 29, 2000, which means that Mike McQuarrie waited six weeks before reporting whatever it was he saw or witnessed in the shower to go see Joe Paterno. Not the police, by the way, but Joe Paterno, the head football coach at Penn State. And that six weeks not only obliterates his credibility, it also obliterates any sense of urgency over what he he claims to have witnessed. There's no urgency if you're waiting six weeks. And oh, by the way, there's a very good reason 
why Mike McCreary went to go see Joe Paterno on the morning of February 10th, 2001, which is an actual fact. We know that happened, and we know that happened because of emails. And it's because of those emails that caused the prosecution to change the date the first time. But uh, the day before, he goes to see Joe Paterno, just by coincidence, although I don't believe this was a coincidence. In the morning paper in State College and on campus that day was a rather large article about how the wide receivers coaching position at Penn State had just opened up because Kenny Jackson had left Penn State to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And uh, that was the job that Mike McQuarrie wanted. That was the job that Mike McQuarrie would end up getting, not then, which is what would have happened if there was a, really a cover-up in this case, but actually three years later uh, when it opened up a second time. And I would submit that it's far more logical that Mike McQuarrie went to go see Joe Paterno on that morning of Saturday, February 10th, not because he had just witnessed Jerry Sandusky assaulting a boy in the shower, but because there was a job that he wanted that opened up. And there's further evidence to support that theory. Uh, and frankly, I don't think it's even much of a theory at this point. I think it's pretty much the most logical, the only logical scenario in right. all this. But that is really the that is really the focus of our first of our first episode of 19 for our way our, our podcast, which is with the benefit of hindsight. And you can find all the the uh, correlating interviews that we did for this podcast at our website, which is framingpaterno.com. That's framingpaterno.com. Right. And and when you sent me the link to uh, framing framingpaterno.com where I could go through and listen to all of these uncut interviews. I I think I don't even think I made past the uh interview with uh Schultz because it was just so I was just so gobsmacked listening to you talking with him and this was I think right after he got out on parole I believe yeah let me let me let me explain who Gary Schultz is and and you're right the the the, the two interviews that I've done with Gary Schultz the only interviews he's ever done media interviews about this case, really, I, in my opinion, blow the whole case up by themselves. And Gary Schultz is one of the three Penn State administrators who was accused and charged and ended up pleading guilty to a misdemeanor in this case. Now, he pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor, not because he felt like he did anything wrong or illegal, but because he was facing incredibly long odds against very very serious charges of a cover-up where because of the media coverage in this case, the jury pool was completely polluted. And I think he rightly understood that he had no shot in a trial. So he took a plea bargain and his lawyer told him in a logical world was not going to result in prison time. Well, I could have told him that we don't live in a logical world on this case and that uh, he was going to go to prison. And he did spend, uh, I think, two months in prison uh, for this misdemeanor, which was ridiculous it's ridiculous to be i mean nobody in his situation would be going to prison for two months on a misdemeanor when they have a perfect record uh but this case is just ripe with injustice anyway uh gary's interviews with me one done in 2018 one done in 2020 along with our co-host liz habib who's a television sports anchor here in los angeles at the fox affiliate a longtime sports journalist who does a great job uh, really being the, the eyes and ears of the audience on this podcast. Uh, but we interviewed Gary for almost four hours in total. And again, these are the first interviews he's ever done. And he is the key person on the issue of the date. He is the reason why the prosecution changed the date the first time. And he now believes for very, very substantive reasons that my uh, assertion on the date that it's actually December 29, 2000 is correct. And that because of that, if you simply think logically about this case from that point, once you accept that December 29, 2000 is the actual date of the McQuarrie episode, then everything else falls apart. And Gary says, as many other people said to us in interviews, that he now believes that Jerry Sandusky is innocent of all the allegations against him, because you cannot, as shocking as it sounds, you, if you understand the case and you understand the timeline, you cannot have any faith at all in the accusers of Jerry Sandusky without Mike McQuarrie's 
story, his allegation being credible. If it's not credible, it changes everything. Because if you understand the timeline, you realize that it was actually Mike McQuarrie's story that got them many, if not almost all, of the trial accusations against uh, Jerry Sandusky. Because what they did was, once they had Mike McQuarrie, and they had a, a victim number one by the name of Aaron Fisher, here's what they did. They had a, a remarkable advantage that you would never have in any other case. They were able to go through a list of former Second Mile, which was Jerry Sandusky's charity for at-risk kids. Not right. boys, by the way. Not boys, girls and boys. Uh, they, they were able to go through a list of all the now adult men who were in the Second Mile charity, a charity for at-risk kids. Now think about this. You now have a pool of adult men who come from horrible backgrounds, most have no fathers. Many have been abused for real in many different ways. Most do not have money. Many are from broken marriages. A lot have drug problems. These are messed up kids, right? Right. That's why they were in the second mile to begin right. with. And so now you can go to each and every one of them. And with the authority of the attorney general's office, you know, an investigator with a badge and, you know, it comes in and, and you know, this is all very seemingly credible. They can go to hundreds of these men and they can say, we have a victim, Aaron Fisher. We've got a witness, Mike McQuarrie. We believe Jerry Sandusky is a monster pedophile. We believe he might've done something to you. Can you help us? We need more accusers. Can you tell us something that he has done to you sexually? And I actually believe that one of the more amazing facts in this case uh it, it's a weird testament to who jerry zanesky really was is when you consider those circumstances and how easy it was to understand that big money was going to be on the table here big money that and that's exactly what ended up happening by the way is all these guys ended up getting paid millions of dollars it is amazing amazing that at the time of jerry zanesky's arrest they're only able to find six men, all adult men, to make any sort of criminal allegation against Jerry Sandusky, and only two of those six men make a direct sexual allegation against Jerry Sandusky, an allegation of actual sex acts. That, to me, is remarkable when you consider just the percentages involved here and, and the incentives involved. And how it is that many of these guys, and it's, it's in, you know, when you find out, and you will in this podcast down the road as we get into the later episodes, when you find out who these men really are, nobody would have believed any of them individually. They were only believed for two reasons, well, three reasons. One, they were anonymous. Two, they were seen as a group, and therefore, as a group, people couldn't all possibly be lying, which is not true if you understand the timeline and three because of mike mcquery's allegation because of mike mcquery's allegation well we know jerry sandusky is a pedophile now we're just trying to figure out who he abused right right well but if you take away right. if you take away mike mcquery all of that collapses and that's how we start the podcast but there is far 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 more to get into and that's why we have 19 episodes of with the benefit of hindsight and and this is one of the things that I never really understood because I was sitting in Afghanistan wrapping up a tour after I'd been there for, I think, 10 months at that point when all of this broke. My lieutenant, he was, he was a Penn State alumnus. He, he bled, you know, the Nittany Lions colors. He was a huge fan of Joe Paterno. So when all of this broke, I... It was like watching Lieutenant McKimmy just fall apart because it's like, wait, there, there's no way. And then as the details started coming out, that was, you know, the ones that were made available that, you know, Mike McQuarrie saw this in the shower and you have an entire platoon of infantrymen turning and looking at each other and going, wait, this guy was a quarterback on the football team and he's not going to go and pull him off the kid. I, I think that was one of the Thank you. most shocking Revelation is like, wait, a young man sees this happening and he's not going to intervene in any way, shape, or form? 
Thank you. Can can we stop there for a second? <laughs> because because what you just said is so very important. And the media, they had that question too, but they decided that the explanation was, well, this was just so shocking. It was just so shocking that he he panicked and he didn't know what to do. And I'm so glad that you told the story about your platoon because you guys were all basically Mike McQuarrie's. You know, you're all young, you're in good shape. McQuarrie was six foot three, six foot four, 230, 35 pounds. Jerry Sandusky is, I think, close to 60 at this point. Uh, and, you know, he's naked. And, uh, you know, the, the instinct, if you saw that, would be to beat the living crap out of Jerry Sandusky, right? Right. And at the very least, you get the, you get, you, and at the very least, you get the boy out of there. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, McQuarrie acknowledges, McQuarrie acknowledges that he did neither. And and I'm so glad you mentioned here's the quarterback on the football team. So we're being told this is not a, a five foot two, you know, a tech. He, he's not the place in a, kicker. In a, in a, right. Right. Not only that, I mean, and, and let's be clear about a quarterback. Here's a guy who played quarterback for Penn State on multiple national television games in front of 100,000 people. And right? he was part of a championship a team, guy. too. Right, right. So this is, this is a guy who's, this is not a guy who's prone to panic, okay? Um, and, and so it makes absolutely no sense, his scenario. And why that is really important is because people did call him on that, it changes McQuarrie's story in several important ways for him to try to make excuses for that. And when, if you, and we do this in the podcast, if you follow the evolution of his story and how it's impacted by his, his agitation and fear over this idea that he panicked and ran and never told the police, it really exposes what I've already referenced which is so much of McQuarrie's story is reverse engineered. That's maybe the key phrase, especially when it comes to Mike McQuarrie, but frankly, it's just the whole case. The whole case is reverse engineered. People had a conclusion that they wanted to get to for very understandable self-interest reasons, and then they contrive a narrative to get there. And sometimes they even contrive facts to get there. They changed facts. They changed testimony, and and McQuarrie is a classic example of that. And by the way, I don't want I, I want to mention this off the bat because I don't want to forget about it. Since you, I didn't realize that you'd been in Afghanistan. When we get to the accusers, there's two things that are, are common within the key accusers, uh, and these are people. These are guys who ended up getting paid about 36, 37 of them got paid over 130 million dollars. Um, there's two things I found very important. One is that several of the key accusers are even refer to themselves as professional gamblers, that they love to gamble. And I've always felt that that was psychologically important because if you're going back to this uh, scenario I referred to as where uh, you've got this pool of people that the investigators are, are speaking to and they're basically going fishing, well, who are the ones that are going to go for the bait? The gamblers, the ones that are that see that see the potential payout, and they're deciding, you know what, the, this risk, my risk of destroying my relationship with Jerry, is worth the potential reward. And I and that's I think three of the trial accusers would fit into that category. In fact, some of them go on on or at least used to go on betting trips together. Uh, they've posted on Facebook about it. The other element of this, and that relates to Afghanistan, is that there are there is a, a strong number of uh, these 37 that are former U.S. military, and mo many of them served in Afghanistan uh, and or Iraq. And another theory that I have on this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is that for some of these guys, and this is I don't know, I would put maybe three or four uh, key guys in this category. I think that part of how they were able to rationalize what they were doing in, in, in 
basically hitting the jackpot here by betraying their friend and father figure, Jerry Sandusky, is that they felt owed because of their service in Afghanistan and Iraq. And for an old school military person, that's impossible to comprehend. I mean, I, I you know, I, I've one of the key people uh, who I interview in this is the founder of the Second Mile Charity, a guy by the name of Bruce Heim, who was a West Point grad. Uh, but he's old school, right? I mean, he's, I don't know, I think he's in his 70s now. And, and so it can't, it, he can't even comprehend that a military guy would do this uh, to Jerry Sandusky, who he now knows is innocent, even after he uh, originally had been convinced by the media that Jerry must be, be guilty. Well, one of the key people in all this is the so-called boy in the shower in the McQuarrie episode. His name is Alan Myers. He was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. And Bruce Heim is, is absolutely flat out flummoxed and outraged that Alan Myers would do this as a guy who took the oath as a Marine. And, uh, and unfortunately, that was not uncommon. I'm, I'm curious, do you have any, any thoughts or reaction to that? I mean, from my experience, I, I know those guys who they get out of the military and they feel like they got shortchained while they were, while they were in and that they got, you know, I got hurt, but it didn't rate for a disability rating or whatever. And so I, I hate to say it, they look for a grift, but it sounds like they look for a grift or guys who they play up every little, you know, stub toe, ingrown toenail. So that way they can maximize that VA disability when they get out. Me, I just, I took hand my medical records to a guy who worked for the American Legion and he went through and said, okay, that should get qualified. That should get qualified. That should get qualified. I, I didn't try to play anything up and you know, I got the rating that I have, but I don't act like it's owed to me because of my service. But there's always those guys who, you know, I, you see them on veterans day. Hey, you will thank me for my service. And that's kind of what I'm seeing with some of these military guys who jumped in on it. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. I mean, that sounds, you know, and again, these are, these are explanations for how and why uh, these accusers were able to, to do this. And, and I realize it's incredibly politically incorrect to uh, say that an accuser uh, in a child sex abuse case is not telling the truth. However, that's how they were able to get away with this. Remember, they were anonymous. I can't emphasize enough how important that is and how much and how much easier it makes this. There's not even cameras in the courtroom in Pennsylvania. And because there's no cameras in the courtroom, these guys were able to do this without people very close to them, knowing that they were Sandusky accusers. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many times when I have released the name of a Sandusky accuser, even, even one that was in the trial, which is a matter of public record, and, and people around that person are completely stunned and oftentimes outraged because they know, wait a cock and pitten, pick and mitten, minute. There's no way, there's no way that that happened with Jerry Sandusky. I saw the two of them together. I know how much he talked about Jerry Sandusky. I know there's just no way that this guy was abused. And by the way, it's an important fact, which is also politically incorrect, that as far as I can tell, every single one of these accusers is heterosexual. And that makes a big difference. And only, unfortunately, only heterosexual men can fully understand why that makes a big difference. But we're being asked to believe that routinely in this case, 12, 13, 14, 15, even 16-year-old boys, heterosexuals, engaged in consensual sexual activity, effectively, with an old man who never gave them alcohol, never gave them drugs, never gave them any money as a payoff. All they ever got was an occasional Penn State football ticket. And not only did these, these young men engage in this, they continue to engage in this 
telling nobody about this, never complaining to anybody, never making a notation in a diary or a journal, ne never, never telling a coach or a mentor or a friend or a mom, nobody. That, that's insane. And, and, <laughs> as a, you're ahead of and, and, and as a foster parent who's been trained to look for this kind of stuff, yeah, my, my career kind of goes everywhere. Um, as a foster parent who's been trained to look for stuff, they're not seeing the behavioral outbursts that would be common with a victim of sexual abuse. They're not, they're not, you know, transferring that onto another kid. They're not, you know, saying things that are very questionable in front of their parents. I mean, there's no signs of it that was happening. Right. I mean, and, and by the way, that's uh, universal. Now, now, what complicates this, and this is why this is all part of the perfect storm, is that I do believe, and we bring evidence to the table of this from his own wife, but I do believe that victim number one in this case, Aaron Fisher, was sexually abused by a man. It just wasn't by Jerry Sandusky. It was by his stepfather, who, by the way, would later be convicted on 100 counts of child molestation and child pornography. Color me shot. Uh, and and so right. So so um you know it was very easy for Aaron, in my opinion, for Aaron Fisher to transfer the abuse by his stepfather onto Jerry Sandusky when he has his mother clearly manipulating him for a payday. And then he gets a therapist who gets invested and the idea that Jerry Sandusky is a very high-profile pedophile, and then the state of Pennsylvania gets invested, and frankly, they're the ones basically trying to convince Aaron Fisher that he got abused by Jerry Sandusky. Uh, and then in, by the time trial comes around, he tells this cockamamie story that he had been abused a hundred times. Now, this is a extremely, extremely heterosexual male, extremely heterosexual, from a very early age. Now, I, you know, I I believe he probably lost his virginity at 13 or 14. It might have even been sooner than that. This, this is a hyper-sexed uh, teenage boy. And he's going over to Jerry Sandusky's house a hundred times to give him oral sex uh, and never never shows any sign of that, never never continues to want to go back. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, it... it there's no evidence of it. His mom never knows about it. By the way, there's, I mean, there's nothing in the laundry. I mean, these are messy, messy acts that we're right. talking about here. I mean, the, pe people seem to think that, that this is a crime that could happen with no evidence. And that's just ridiculous. They're, they're, the, these crimes happen. They leave massive amounts of evidence. And usually the way these cases go, it's pretty simple. And abuse happens eventually. A, a victim tells a parent or a mentor. The mentor, uh, if they do the right thing, goes to the authorities. The authorities start an investigation. Part of that investigation is they get enough evidence to get a warrant for the computer. They get the computer. They find lots of child pornography, maybe even pornography involving the, the, the abuse victim himself or herself. And at that point, there's a plea bargain because, and usually a confession. Because by the way, a lot of these uh, people, pedophiles, or people engaged in ephebophilia, which is what this technically is, they actually want to be caught because they, they view this as an illness. Not all, but, but many. And so these cases, they, they go in a very predictable pattern. So you get the pornography, you get a plea bargain, a confession. There's rarely even a trial. And then the person goes to prison. Well, none of that happens in this case. There's There's zero pornography, which is Unheard of, unheard of. And, and you and, said and something. He is the furthest. You, you had said something about uh, Aaron Fisher, you know, talking about you believe he was, you know, abused by his stepfather, which, you know, later he was had his convictions. And his prosecutors are the ones convincing him that, no, this happened from Jerry Sandusky. Apparently these prosecutors have never watched uh, 48 Hours ever in their lives because how many times can we go back in recent history of uh, the late eighties, early nineties, satanic panic, uh, uh, child sex abuse at daycares where you 
They're on video coaching kids on show me on the doll where he hurt you. And they, they can't look back and go, you know, maybe, maybe we should uh, draw some comparisons here because maybe we're doing exactly what those debunked cases were. Well, you're referring to the McMartin preschool case, which happened here in Southern California, where I live. And there are parallels to that case. And uh, to answer your question about the prosecutors, I think a couple of things happened. One, we were far enough removed from that kind of case to where they think, okay, that was just an anomaly. But then something really, really, really important happens. And that is the child sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church, which was huge in Pennsylvania. And so when prosecutors get this allegation, which is obviously juicy as hell, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about a very high profile person related, related to the Penn State, the, 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 you know, the esteemed Penn State football program and Joe Paterno. I mean, that's hard to resist when you know that a case like that can make your career, make you famous, potentially make you money. Uh, you know, all, you know, book deals, all sorts of things are possible here. And when they, when it happens right after the child sex abuse scandal in the Catholic church, the prosecutors and the news media, I believe immediately say to themselves, oh, we've seen this movie before in the child sex abuse scandal in the Catholic church. We've got, you know, Joe Paterno, who just happens to be an, an Italian Catholic. He's the Pope. And the administrators are the cardinals covering this up. And Sandusky is the pedophile priest. And the Penn State football fans are the Catholic parishioners looking the other way to protect their their sacred institutions. And it all fit, except it was reverse engineered, (laughs) except it actually set everybody up or it, 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 it set everybody up for misperceiving what was going on and you know there's so many different ways to attack the case here but in the broadest of terms the one the way i like to do it is forget about all the facts we get into all the facts in 19 episodes i mean we get really really deep into all the facts in a very entertaining way if it's possible to be entertaining talking about this particular horrible subject matter but in the biggest of pictures i ask people to think about it this way Have you ever heard of a crime that was proven almost solely by virtue of the allegation of a cover-up? In other words, everything was in the reverse order here, to use my, my theme of reverse engineering. The way this works is you find out there's a crime, and then you go, oh, well, how the hell did this person get away with this? Did anyone help him? Here... They thought they proved the cover-up first and that therefore the cover-up was proof of the crime. But there was no cover-up because it turns out there was no crime. And so this is how everything spins out of control and you get this domino effect of injustice. Right, and... No, it's starting to push into the half hour mark. Um, so, so getting ready to wrap this up a little bit. So, I just want to know how did uh how did Liz Habib get involved with this project? Well, uh, Liz Habib and I have a very unique uh, background, where uh, thirty years ago, at the NBC affiliate in Steubenville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia. I was the sports anchor and she was the news anchor on weekends. And, uh, and so we got to know each other then and we hadn't, we didn't keep in touch for quite a while, but then it turned out that we both came to Los Angeles at almost the exact same time. Me as a radio talk show host, her as a uh, television sports anchor, ironically enough, at the Fox affiliate uh, here in Los Angeles. And she happens to be a graduate of Pitt, which is Penn State's big rival. And her Mm -hmm. brother happened to play football uh, for Penn State uh, when Joe Paterno was there. And so I thought, wow, here's a person I know, person that uh, I trust and she trusts me. 
uh, a person who reported on this case from the conventional wisdom perspective at the beginning of this case. And so if I can change her mind or if I can get her to come along this journey and be the eyes and ears of the audience and ask me, because I want scrutiny. I want scrutiny on this. I don't want people to just accept what I'm saying because I'm that confident. And that's what's so hilarious about this is that you know mo most people who don't look at, haven't looked at this think I'm a lunatic. I get called a lunatic constantly. Yet I'm so confident I'm right. I want as much scrutiny as possible because I'm positive I'm right and it's not even close. And so Liz was somebody that I thought, okay, wouldn't that be awesome if, if she could come on board and our executive producer, Mike Agavino, who's very well known in the, in the radio and podcasting industry, he uh, helped uh, you know, facilitate Liz coming on board and he's been the executive producer for all of this. Uh, he's the one who edits the, the episodes and he's the one who has put out the money from a production standpoint for this to happen. So while it was my suggestion, I would say that the person that is really responsible for Liz Beeb being part of this, other than Liz Beeb herself, is our executive producer, Mike Agavino. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that you brought her on. And she does an amazing job playing foil to you, being, being able to push you to, you know, demonstrate the connections and how all this plays out. And it, it's just a great chemistry with the two of you. It Sometimes listen to you two go back and forth. It's like listening to uh, Leah Remini and Mike Render on their show about Scientology push back and forth on each other. And it's just an excellent chemistry that makes it great to listen to. And it's an amazing show. Um, as of this recording, there are the first two episodes posted. And again, there's uh, FramingJoePaterno.com. Did I say that right? Framing Paterno. Framing Paterno. Paterno.com. Framing Paterno.com. That's where you can find the, the core interviews as well as the links to the to the iTunes and Spotify uh, versions of the podcast. Although the podcast is everywhere. Basically, everywhere you can get your podcast, the, the podcast is there. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that by the time this comes out, uh, episode three will be out, which is a doozy. You do not want to miss episode three. Uh, that one, uh, my executive producer, uh, Mike Agavino, thinks that's the most memorable of, of maybe all the episodes. So I, I don't know, because I'd have to listen to all of them, But because there's a lot of very good ones out of the 19. But number three is is pretty amazing. And and because, because so far, at least, uh, you know, Mike believes we have a hit on our hands, uh, he's increasing the speed with which we are releasing these episodes. We were originally thinking it would be once a week. Uh, now we're going to twice a week. So by the end of this week, as we record, uh, episode four will also be out. So you won't be able to fully binge, at least not yet. But if you're behind, uh, by the end of this week, you'll be able to binge four episodes. And by the way, these are very extensive episodes. We don't chinch you on the on the episodes. No, is it? Some of them are hours long. Right. And so um, even listening to so, interviews, yeah, I mean, are, even listening to interviews at Framing Paterno, you know, those are two, three hour interviews too. And so it's, it's definitely involves some time investment. And before, before we go, I do have, yeah, but I also, <laughs> I was going to say, before we go, I have to ask, is there going to be a season two and three where you look at, go over your stuff for the, uh, Michael Jackson scandal and the Matt Lauer scandal? <laughs> um, well, I would love there to be uh, season two and season three. In fact, <laughs> we could probably do more than more than three of these because I, I do think this this phenomenon is is not that uncommon. Um, unfortunately, the news media doesn't understand that it's it's getting more and more common. I easily could do uh, a series on the Michael Jackson allegations. Frankly, it would probably be a much greater commercial success because the Michael Jackson fans are amazing. Because so many people uh, will be I, I pissed to... off at you. <laughs> right. Well, I'm not worried about that. If I was worried about that, I never would have gone down this path to begin with. Absolutely. And that's partially why I was able to do this. 
but uh, I'm a very rare bird in, in this industry that I'm, I don't care about people hating me. Uh, and, but let me just say, I, I even, we do some Michael Jackson analysis in this podcast, especially later on. And, and one of the things I, I say <laughs> is that if uh, the Penn State fans were as, as good and as strong as the Michael Jackson fans, not only would Joe Paterno's statue still be up, um, his his face would be permanently emblazoned at the 50-yard line of Beaver Stadium uh, because the Michael Jackson fans, um, they take no prisoners. No. Uh, the Penn State fans, fr- frankly, are, are too fractured and, and many of them are too wussified and have bought into a, a, a BS narrative, in my opinion. But um, And the Matt Lauer story, you know, Matt and I have talked about doing something along these lines about not just the allegations against him, which are false. I mean, he, he committed infidelity, but he never raped anybody. I can right. assure you that I've, I know, I, I know more about the Matt Lauer story than anybody, but Matt Lauer, uh, I've, I've spent, I don't know, at least a hundred hours on the phone with him and in person with him. Uh, so, um, you know, whether that's going to happen, I don't know, but Matt has agreed to at some point, uh, give something like this a try. Uh, so we'll see. I, I, you know, I hope it happens. It would be spectacular. Oh yeah. I, I would love to, think, I would it, love to have it, have Matt Lauer be able to work with you on because, you know, Joe Paterno, this whole thing killed him. He, he got fired and there was such an uproar. I think that's what caused him cause his, you know, I say premature death. He's in his eighties, but you know, when all this is going on, that's when he died. You know, Michael Jackson obviously OD'd on what, propofol and is no longer here to be able to defend himself against the allegations. But Matt Lauer being able to come on and do a project and lay out, you know, timeline, here is what happened. I think that'd be an amazing podcast. Well, it would be, and it would be more than just that. I mean, if you think Liz and I have uh, chemistry, uh, the chemistry Matt Lauer and I have uh, might be even <laughs> more amazing, uh, if that's possible. Uh, uh, we have a very unique relationship, uh, much different uh, than the one I have with with Liz. But uh, weirdly, Matt and I, Matt didn't even know this, but Matt and I actually worked at the same station in Boston back in the late 80s. I was just a lowly intern, and he was the morning show host there but um but i i really hope that something like that happens i you know i'm, I'm well aware that uh, there could be hurdles and you know i, I think i do believe because matt's a man of his word that, that we will try something but um you know whether or not it actually happens or not i think probably is beyond both of our control but but you know look i mean in the big picture there is so much content here on 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 many of these kinds of uh, stories, I think the Brett Kavanaugh one. I mean, to me, the Brett Kavanaugh movie is a hell of a movie. Oh, absolutely, uh, and that actually would have a a built-in audience uh, for it because I mean, to me, Brett Kavanaugh got completely railroaded. I mean, in some ways, uh, you, know, you know, in my opinion, Brett Kavanaugh never even met uh, Doctor Ford. Uh, and, and so, I mean, here, and here he almost has his entire life destroyed by an allegation by her. Um, and the real story of what happened there is, is fascinating. Um, but you know, there, there's so much fear on the other side and that's, and let's be clear, that's partially why these narratives stick because the media won't allow the other side to even be heard. And people are terrified of being canceled by supporting a child sex abuser or a rapist or, or you know whatever the allegation is no one wants to do that and so the ronan pharaohs of the world they have free reign oh, yeah they just they, run they roughshod over everybody out there. now right and, and and especially if it comes from pharaoh it's an it's a, it's a, assumed to be true and and my investigation of pharaoh is the guy is a fraud I mean, the guy is a flat-out fraud who uh, is is not deserving of anywhere near the credibility that that the news media gives him. Uh, and, but it's like he's he's like Dr. Fauci. He cannot be touched now. Uh, he, he's a made man in the media, and you're not allowed you're not allowed to question him. All right, John, uh, I'm gonna have to wrap it up here. 
I just want to say thank you for being so gracious with your time, considering we were supposed to do this once before, and an emergency happened at the last possible minute that scared made me scared that I wouldn't get the second opportunity. So thank you for being gracious with your time and coming back and having the opportunity to talk with me. It means a lot to me as someone who's completely independent and just trying to reach out and, you know, have a mark on this. So thank you so very much. Well, thank you for caring about the subject. And uh, I have kids myself, so I get it when things happen in life. And uh, no problem. And I'm glad we were able to make it work. All right, John, thank you so very much. And hopefully we can uh, talk again with uh, maybe a Michael Jackson or a Matt Lauer show. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Bye. All right, so that's going to wrap up this episode. Just, again, thank you, John Ziegler, for coming on the show and spending your time with me talking about with talking about your new podcast, With the Benefit of Hindsight. Uh, if you go to framingpaterno.com, again, you can check out all the extensive interviews that John and Liz did to put this show together. An absolute amazing show. Uh, binge it get caught up as quick as you can. It's well worth the listen. John has everything laid out crystal clear. So it's very easy to follow along again. Thank you so much for listening uh, to support this podcast. Please go to relentlessdaring.com If you want to be a donor and contribute to the show, there is a don't, there's a donate now button at the top of the page. Click it. You can set up a one time or a recurring donation. Then you don't have to worry about it up. Uh, also, one more thing, if you are not subscribed to the show, please go to Apple iTunes because that's where most people do it. You know, whatever your, whatever your podcast app is, you know, hit the subscribe button. If you are on Apple iTunes, again, the four things I ask, subscribe. Number two, leave a review or leave a rating, preferably five stars. I will take four. I'm not picky, but I would prefer five stars. And then write a nice review. You know, embellish a little. Don't get carried away. I don't want people to think that I'm, like, paying you for great reviews or anything. That'd just be weird. Um, that way, when it pops up as a suggested as a suggested listening for other people, and they go through and they read the reviews, they'll go, oh, they generally like this podcast. Except for that guy. And then, finally, feel free to share this episode, especially... But share the podcast in general with your friends. Send it to people who you think will like this and will agree with the things I have to say. Not that I want sycophants. I also want people who, you know, might want to push back. Also send it to people who you know this will drive them absolutely crazy. Yes, I will be your tool to spread hate and discontent. It's what I do. Thank you so very much for listening and tuning in for this episode with John Ziegler. And as always, stay relentless. This is Relentless Dairy on Podbean.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.